0: Got your Bibles open to Revelation 7. Last week was chapter 6, and this week is chapter 7, so we're really speeding up now. We got through all the explanation of all the big picture things, and now we're putting it all together. So, Revelation 7 the main theme is mercy in judgment. So, well, there's two themes in here mercy in judgment, God shows mercy in judgment, and Israel. God's light to the Gentiles. So we'll explain that as we go through. I'll just pray. Father, thank you for what we learn from this chapter. Lord, these tribulation saints, this multitude of people who come out of the great tribulation, who are martyred for their faith, Lord. They are washed white by the blood of the Lamb. And we just thank you that no matter what age we live in, whether it be Old Testament or New Testament or Tribulation or Millennial Kingdom, Lord, it doesn't matter. We're all saved by grace, through faith, by the blood of Jesus. So we just thank you for these wonderful truths and pray that you help us to think about the song that's going to be sung in this chapter. And that is that they're going to be praising you, we will be praising you for our salvation. So Lord, help us not to take our salvation for granted, but to be praising you and be rejoicing the fact that we are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, as Jesus says. To the disciples, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So help us, Father, to be excited about what you've done for us and what you're doing in us and what we have in store in the future. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I'm just going to go through chapter six really, really quickly just to give you the background. So, chapter six is the start of the tribulation. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, chapter six is chronological, which means it tells us the order of events. Okay, this happens and this happens and this happens. Whereas, chapter seven is not chronological, it's a vignette, it's a little story, and it explains who these special people are, these 144,000 witnesses, and how they came to be sealed and saved and what their ministry will be during the seven-year tribulation period. And so basically their ministry will take place over basically the entire seven-year period. So it's not an event that happens at specific point in time, it's something that happens throughout the tribulation. So you have this vignette, this story which explains this group of people and their mission which is to save souls. So this story in chapter 7, this vignette, tells us that there's going to be a multitude of saved people from every tribe, tongue and nation who will end up being killed for their faith. And as I said, the 144,000 play an important role in evangelizing the whole world and causing a multitude that cannot be counted to come to know Christ. But before we go into chapter 7, I'm going to quickly give a summary of the main events in chapter 6 just to bring you up to speed. And so you know what happens right from the very start. The Antichrist is revealed and what's happened so far. So the first seal, the tribulation, is about to begin. The Antichrist is revealed and comes to power. Now this is when the clock starts ticking. This is when the last seven-year peace treaty is signed with Israel. And that last seven years begins on that day. And then exactly seven years, seven lots of 360 days, Jesus comes back. And this is the last of the 77s of years spoken of by Daniel in chapter 9, verse 24 to 27. The second seal... He promises peace, this Antichrist, but the result is war, and it's a world war. The third seal, the war, causes famine and disease. And the fourth seal, it tells us that as a result of the war, famine and disease and wild beasts, a quarter of the world's population is killed. That's like two billion people. If there's eight billion people in the world now, which is pretty close to that, a quarter would be two billion people. So we're talking about, death, pain, and bloodshed and and suffering on a level that's never been seen in this world before. And this is only the start of the tribulation. There's still another half of the entire population, another four billion people which will die during the tribulation. And the fifth seal tells us that during this time there is a massive persecution of the tribulation saints, those who believe during the tribulation. And as we find out today, many A martyred or killed for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. And the sixth seal, there's this massive earthquake or shaking and other cosmic disturbances, and the people of the earth recognize that these judgments are from God and they fear God's judgments. They say, save us, take us away, get us away from the presence of God and the presence of the Lamb. And the chapter closes with the question, who is able to stand in relation to the wrath of the Lamb, and chapter 7 gives us the answer. So, I believe the Bible says that the church will already be standing before Christ in heaven, dressed in white garments. We see that in chapters 4 and 5. But in chapter 7, we're going to see two other groups who will also stand before God, eventually at the end of the tribulation, because they have been washed clean and cleansed by the blood of the Lamb and declared innocent before God. And also, as I mentioned at the very start, in chapter 7, we see God remembering mercy in judgment. And there's two ways that God shows mercy in judgment. First, God does not remain angry with Israel, even though they rejected and crucified him when he came to them the first time. And I just want to show you a couple of verses that show God's heart towards his chosen people, the nation of Israel, despite their continual disobedience. So the first one is Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 12. It says, Go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, Return, backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. So, apply that to us personally. When we sin, God does not remain angry with us forever. He disciplines us, but there's always, as Lamentation says his mercy is in you every morning. The same applies to Israel. And the next one is Jeremiah 31 verse 20. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. Ephraim was one of the tribes in Israel that went really deep into idolatry and really turned away from God. But here's God's heart. I yearn for Ephraim. I yearn for the northern tribes or for Israel. It's a euphemism for Israel. And the second way we see God's mercy on display is how God continues to show mercy to the very world that he is judging. A world that hates him and is doing everything it can to be independent of him. So a verse that, highlights this is Habakkuk chapter three verse two. It says I have heard all about you, Lord, I am filled with awe by your amazing works. In this time of our deep need, help us again as you did in years gone by, and in your anger remember your mercy. So that's part of God's character, and in his anger, when he judges us, when he disciplines us, he remembers mercy. And that applies to the lost world as well. God for a long time shows mercy. He gives us opportunity or the world, opportunity to repent. So what we see throughout most of the tribulation, at least right up to the very end, is God doing everything he can to offer sinners the pardon for their sins, the opportunity to receive eternal life and live together with him forever. There's going to be, this is a quick summary, um, there's going to be 144,000 Jewish evangelists traveling all over the world the two witnesses prophesying from Jerusalem for the first three and a half years, we'll get to that, I think it's chapter 11, as well as angels flying around the world warning people of three specific ways the Antichrist wants to deceive them and of course giving them the everlasting gospel. So this is truly astounding when we consider just how evil this world is and it will be in the tribulation time when it's basically ruled by Satan. They will treat with absolute disrespect and persecution, the 144,000 messengers. The church has been mistreated. The true believers have been mistreated and put down and persecuted. The two witnesses are going to be murdered in cold blood and the world is going to rejoice. Okay? So it's going to be celebrated. So basically, this world is really really wicked and it's going to get much more wicked than what it is now. That God still shows mercy. So with that as a bit of a background, let's read chapter 7. I'm just going to read right through. It says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. And it continues in verse 5. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Natali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Anasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where do they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, it's the great tribulation, and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So these tribulation saints, these ones who come out of the great tribulation, they are going to go through severe persecution. But they will find their comfort when they come before the Lord. All right, let's start at verse 1. After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow on the earth on the sea or any tree. So as we talked about previously we need to work out what these signs and symbols mean. These ones are pretty easy. The phrase the four corners of the earth is an ancient and also a modern figure of speech and it means the four points of the compass and it basically means that these angels affect the entire earth. I'll give you an example. Real world example and a biblical one. The US Marines ran an advertising campaign a while ago that said, Our Marines are stationed on the four corners of the earth. You know, and we often use this as a figure of speech. And the Bible also uses it. I'll read a verse about that in a minute. But the wind, or as it is here, the four winds of the earth, speak of the judgment of God. And there's quite a few verses in the Old Testament that use wind as judgment. And there's Jeremiah forty nine thirty six, Jeremiah 51, verse 1 and 16. So I'm just going to read the Jeremiah 49, verse 36. First, it says, Against Elam I will bring the four winds from the four quarters of heaven and scatter them towards all those winds. There shall be no nations where the outcast of Elam will not go. So Elam is a nation being judged by God and the winds represent this judgment. And they're going to be scattered towards all those winds. The four quarters of the earth are going to be scattered all over the earth. So basically here, notice that the use of the figure of speech, the four quarters of heaven to mean the whole world and the four winds represent the judgment. So it seems likely that God sealed the 144,000 before any judgments came upon the earth. So he would have a witness on the earth for the full seven years. Because what we read last week, or study last week was, judgment. There's lots of things happening that were killing people. Alright, verse 2. I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. This is interesting. Before the judgment begins, God supernaturally seals these 144,000 Jewish witnesses. Now, is it a visible seal? I don't know, but it could be. According to Revelation 14:1, it could be the name of the Father because it says there that they're sealed with the name of the Father on their foreheads and the fact that it says on their foreheads makes me think that it could be visible. But in saying that in Ezekiel 9 chapter 4, a similar protective seal was given to the righteous who lived in Jerusalem before Jerusalem was judged by Nebuchadnezzar, but no one saw that one, you know. They were the ones who were taken to Babylon and saved from the siege of Jerusalem. Now, another objection that people have here is that, well, there's 10 lost tribes. The 10 lost tribes are gone. They got mixed up with all the other people. They became the Samaritan people. But a bit of history here. I started doing a bit of reading. You know, there was David who was king of Israel. There's one kingdom. And then Solomon, his son. He became the king of Israel, and there's still one kingdom, but Solomon, towards the end of his life, he became apostate. He married pagan women, and he started worshipping all their gods. So God prophesied through, I think it was Abijah or something like that, one of those prophets. He said, I'm going to split the kingdom. I'm going to tear the ten northern tribes away from the southern kingdom. And so Solomon's son would only have Judah and Benjamin, and someone else, a guy called Jeroboam, would have the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes. So what happened was, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, he remained faithful to God for the first three years of his kingship. Whereas Jeroboam, he was scared. This actually says he was scared that all the people would go back to Rehoboam (laughs) <laughs> it's confusing, eh? Rehoboam, Solomon's son, Jeroboam, the other king, Okay, the northern tribes. They'd all go back and they'd all desert him. So what he did, he made these two golden calves and he put one in Bethel and one in Dan. And he made these other demonic gods. And he got rid of the Levites and said, anyone can be a priest. Now, you've got to remember this was a time in Israel when it's just after David and it's just after Solomon, uh, or when Solomon was actually following the Lord and he'd built the temple, so there was a strong following of the true God in Israel still. And I'm just going to read 2 Chronicles 11, 16-17 and show you what happened. All right. So 2 Chronicles 11, 16-17, and it starts off with, From all the tribes of Israel, those who sincerely wanted to worship the Lord, the God of Israel, followed the Levites to Jerusalem where they could offer sacrifices to the Lord, the God of their ancestors. This strengthened the kingdom of Judah and for three years they supported Rehoboam, son of Solomon, for during those years they faithfully followed in the footsteps of David and Solomon. So for those first three years you had multitudes of Israelites from all the tribes of Israel, including the Levites of course, especially the Levites because they weren't considered priests anymore. They all come back to Jerusalem so they could worship and serve at the temple. But there was all, from all the tribes of Israel, they came back. So the southern kingdom of Judah was taken captive many years later, but the difference between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom was kind of mixed up and they interbred. The Assyrians had this method of destroying culture by interbreeding culture, if I can use that word, intermixing cultures and, and basically as a result the northern kingdoms became the Samaritans. So they, they're kind of lost but in the southern kingdom they went into Babylon and they were dispersed but they maintained their Jewish heritage. And some of the Jews came back after the 70 years but some of them stayed living in the countries they were exiled to. And here we have uh, James, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. So James tells us that there's twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. And if you read the book of Esther, this is quite a bit of time after the captivity is finished. There's still a great many Jews, thousands and thousands of them, living outside of Israel in all or most, at least most of the provinces of the Mede and Persian Empire. That's the empire that followed the Babylonian Empire. And the same is true today. There are still many Jewish communities around the world faithful to their culture, faithful to their heritage, besides the millions who have already chosen to return to Israel. So what about this seal? What is the seal? What does it mean to be sealed by God? So in the ancient world, these seals were very common. It was the way you identified your property. So if you know I was a property owner or I was working for a government, the government would have its particular seal in a ring, like a signet ring, and it would have like a pattern engraved on it, and you'd melt some wax and put the ring in the wax as it was going hard, and the imprint of the ring would be in the wax. And so if that wax was on a particular item, and it had your imprint on it, then it was yours. And no one could touch that. That was the law. That's how they identified possessions and things like that. It proved ownership. And only the owner had the authority to break the seal. And as an example, a builder would seal with wax the lumber or the wood he chose before it was shipped across the sea. And it would then arrive at the port nearest him, and the builder would carry away whichever trees had his seal on them. Okay, so identified which ones were his. Now here's an application. So too the Master Carpenter, Jesus Christ, has chosen us to be the material the stones, the bricks in his eternal temple. Therefore he has sealed us with his spirit, Ephesians four thirty. And so just like we're sealed with the Holy Spirit to be a part of his temple, he's building us into a temple, says in Ephesians. These Jewish believers were also sealed with the Holy Spirit. So it's not just a physical thing on their head, but it's also an imparting a power by the Holy Spirit. These guys were saved at the same time. So, continuing on, in verse 2, And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Now, it's interesting. 144,000 Jews be marked by God as his servants during the tribulation. And in chapter 14, verse 1, we see every one of them surviving until the end of the tribulation. So this seal is a special seal because, you know, Christians get martyred today. You know, Christians die. We're still with the Holy Spirit. But it's a different kind of seal, different application. Here, it's a seal. Not only do they have the Holy Spirit in them and upon them, but they also have supernatural protection, it seems. So, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how Israel was God's light to the world until they rejected the Messiah, and then God instituted the church to be his witness. And we have been, and still are, His witness to the world. But the church at the rapture will be removed, I believe, and then God will again use Israel to reach the world for the last seven years of human government before Jesus comes back. So God has not abandoned his chosen or covenant people, Israel, and he will keep his promises to them. Now, the 144,000 is interesting. There's lots of different theories, okay, on who these people are. So I just want to go through a couple. Many groups claim to be the 144,000. Did you realize that? Like the Jehovah's Witnesses, historical Mormonism, Ellen G. White, the Seventh-day Adventists, Garner and Ted Armstrong and his Worldwide Church of God. All these different groups. Now, why would these groups want to be the 144,000 considering that during the tribulation, they're going to be suffering persecution and the world is going to be falling apart around them. Well, there's an underlying reason, and that is they conveniently write the Jews out of prophecy. Because if these are them, then it's not the Jews. okay? And this has been, throughout all history, Christians and cult members alike have attempted to take Israel out of the end times or eschatological equation, and these doctrines have various names, but here's a few of them: replacement theology, Israel's place with the church, reconstructionism, kingdom now you might have heard some of those doctrines floating around, and basically all the same, they all say that god's promises to Israel were passed on to the church because the Jews rejected Jesus It's not a new idea one of the first written evidences of this is Origin, O-R-I-G-E-N, in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, and he basically said, paraphrasing, I think we've been reading the scriptures wrong, all the promises given to Israel are simply allegories and illustrations, and everything has been transferred to the church, all those promises, not for Israel anymore, they're for the church. And the church went downhill from that point on and Augustine or Augustine. He followed in the same footsteps. He's a tremendous guy, really clever, but he pushed this thing about the allegorizing of the Old Testament, especially prophecy. Now, Augustine was eventually followed by Martin Luther and Luther, although he came back and started interpreting salvation scriptures literally, and got that right. He still didn't interpret prophecy, literally, and he hated the Jews. Hated the Jews. Because he disregarded the simple and plain meaning of the multiple verses that record God saying emphatically that he will never leave, give up on, or disown the people of Israel. And as a practical application of this, a practical outworking, a lot of Protestant pastors supported Hitler well into his regime as he murdered millions of Jews, because they didn't see the importance of the Jewish nation. They just thought of them as a bit of a curse because they killed the Messiah. So we'll talk more about that later, anti-Semitism. But I want to just talk about why God has not left, or he has not finished with the people of Israel. What are the five covenants that God has made? So just run for them really quick. First, there's the Abrahamic covenant where God promised to bless Abraham regardless of what Abraham did or didn't do. Okay, So that's unconditional. That means it doesn't depend on what man does. It's God's promise It's going to happen. It will happen. The second covenant is the Palestinian covenant, the land covenant. And again, that is unconditional. The third covenant is the Mosaic covenant or the law. If you obey me, I'll bless you. If you don't, you'll be cursed. That is conditional. That's one of the five that's conditional. The only one of the five. Then the fourth covenant with the Jews is the Davidic covenant where God unconditionally promised that an eternal king would come from David's line, David's family line. And of course that's Jesus and that's happened. And the last covenant is the new covenant. God unconditionally promised to give Israel a new heart upon which he would write his will and they would want to follow him. They would follow him with all their heart. And that's Jeremiah 31, 31 31-33. And that's yet to be fulfilled, but God has already brought them back into the land just like he said he would, and it's just a matter of time before he not just restores the nation, but he restores their hearts as well. So again, this is really important because this doctrine is really rampant through the church, and it's growing in popularity. God is not through with the Jew. Because of the promises he made to them are unconditional, they cannot be forfeited. And here's something from John Corson that brings a point home. But Israel failed, you say. Well, so do I. But Israel was fickle, you protest. So are you. But Israel faltered, you whisper. So do we. <laughs> are we any different from Israel? No. That's why in Romans Chapters 9 to 11, God says, I have not turned my back on Israel. They have been partially and only temporarily rejected. God will bring them back. It's a temporal and partial rejection. So let's learn about these 144,000. Revelation 7, 5 to 8, it goes through 12 of the tribes. And it says that there's 12,000 from each of those tribes. I won't read all those things again. You know, one of the first one is of the tribe of Judah. Twelve thousand were sealed, and then there's Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. So it's interesting. I just want to point out something about this list of tribes. All right, the tribe of Joseph. Joseph was one of Jacob's sons. Jacob had twelve sons, but God did something special. Back when Jacob was dying. Jacob took Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's two sons, and says, I'm going to make these tribes in Israel. These guys are going to be tribes in Israel. These sons are mine. So Joseph, instead of being one tribe, became two tribes. Jacob actually said, these sons are my sons. They're going to be counted as my sons. So they're going to be counted as the tribes of Israel which is why there's actually 13 tribes, and often there's one missing. So, when they were giving out the land, it was distributed between 12 tribes, and the Levites were all scattered among them as the administrators of the country. But here, one of them is missing. Can you figure out which one is missing? Which is the missing tribe? Joseph is... In here, it's kind of like saying Ephraim, and then there's Manasseh. So one of the other tribes is missing. Yeah, what do you think? The tribe of Dan. Yeah, Dan's missing. So Ephraim might have been slighted, you know, or not named specifically because they were also associated with the great harlotry. But Dan, Dan was really into idolatry, and also. The rabbis, the Jewish rabbis, consistently interpret the prophecy in Genesis 49.17 to mean that a false messiah or antichrist, it could be the false prophet, will come from the tribe of Dan. And the references for that are Daniel 11.37 and Jeremiah 8.16. So that's one possibility, that why Dan's not there. And the other possibility is that Dan might not be there because of their idolatry. Um, Deuteronomy 29 says that any tribe involved in idolatry would be separated from the remaining tribes of Israel. And that's what God has done. He separated them from the remaining tribes of Israel. Dan was responsible for causing Israel to go into idolatry. They were one of the first tribes to do that. But, again we see God's mercy. Guess what happens in the Millennial Kingdom when the tribes are allocated their Land. Who's the first tribe that gets their land? It's Dan. If you read Ezekiel 48 1 3. So, God, again, He disciplines them. He says, Well, you're not taking part in this ministry of reaching out to the world because of your idolatry. You've disqualified yourself, but you're still part of the kingdom. You're still part of the nation. So, Who the 144,000 are is an important issue. If they are a symbol of the church, it means that the church is in the Great Tribulation, but sealed for survival through the Great Tribulation. So this basically means there's no pre-trib rapture, but there's more to it than that. This picture doesn't fit. Okay, I'll show you why. So some of the facts about the 144,000. They are called the children of Israel, Revelation 7.4. They are associated with specific Israeli tribes. They seem to be protected and triumphant throughout the period of God's wrath, meeting with Jesus at Mount Zion at his return. And they are celibate. That means they're single or unmarried, and they're also virgins, Okay, Revelation 14.4. They are the beginning of a greater harvest, which we will read about soon. And they are marked by integrity and faithfulness, Revelation 14.5. So together, these facts make it difficult to say that the 144,000 are a symbolic picture of the church. Why? Because Israel is a term never specifically applied to the church in the New Testament and never by any Christian until AD It's difficult to imagine the entire church surviving through the tribulation. Because, you know, there's going to be many martyrs, so it doesn't really make sense. And also, the church is not celibate. We're not virgins. Many of the people in the church are not virgins. Some are, obviously. But this group of people is a special group of people. They are literal virgins. They're celibate. And also, if the church is in the tribulation and we are the first fruits and we're the multitude of people, then who is the greater harvest? Are we the beginning of? So, there's a lot of problems in saying that the church is the 144,000. So, I think it's best that we see the 144,000 for biblical reasons as specifically chosen Jewish people who come to faith in Jesus, are protectively sealed throughout the tribulation as a sign and a witness to the rest of the world. They are the beginning of the harvest of the salvation of Israel, and you can see Romans eleven one, eleven twenty six and Matthew twenty three, thirty seven, thirty nine for references about that. So let's go back to Revelation seven and verse nine. And it says After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. So verse 9. A great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. So, the diversity here is evidence that the Great Commission will be fulfilled before the end. It's just not the end before the church goes, but the end before Jesus comes back. It says in Matthew 24, 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So, this verse doesn't actually apply to the church. Jesus, in this passage, in Matthew 24, if you look at the context, is talking to the Jews and what will happen to the Jewish nation as they go through the tribulation. For example, a few verses on, in Matthew 24, verse 20, it talks about the flight after the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist revealing himself as being the, the Antichrist. He says, pray that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath. So this is talking about the Jewish people. The Jews are the only nation that keep the Sabbath. Now, here's an interesting fact, a bit of a side note here. John knew, John the Apostle knew, they came from different nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. So if you're interested, when we get our glorified body, guess what? If you've got dark skin or whatever, you're probably going to have a still have dark skin when you get to heaven. Because you'll be able to look around, because John's just telling, telling us what he's seeing, right? You'll see that there's different nations and tribes and peoples and tongues. You'll see that. So we're going to maintain an individuality that we have down here on earth, I believe. Now, in verse 9, it says that this great multitude was standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This is a common theme. Every time we get into heaven, what's the central thing? It's the throne of God. Everyone's attention in heaven is focused on the throne of God. Also, it says in verse 9 that they are clothed with white robes These robes remind us not only of the covering righteousness of Jesus, but also of priestly service. And verse 9 also describes the multitude as having palm branches in their hands. Now, what does that remind you of, these palm branches? The triumphal entry, so they're a picture of victory. Okay, So you can read John 12, 12, 12-26, when Jesus was praised as Saviour and King. And the word Hosanna means... Save now, yeah. So historically, palm branches represented victory, and what it's showing is that this great multitude is celebrating a victory. Not even death could defeat them. Now we've been through this before in a couple of times, in weeks gone by. But what is the source of our victory? Yeah, what is the source of our victory? 1 John 5, 4-5 For every child of God defeats this evil world, and we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So, every one of those multitude had a palm branch. They were all victorious. Look at what it says about the church here. And every child of God defeats this evil world, and we will achieve this victory through our faith. So it's not about us, it's all about God. It's all about what he's done for us. And it's all by faith. We can't do it ourselves. We trust him and his spirit works in us and through us. And remember that our sanctification is something that God does for us. We're not responsible for changing ourselves. Only God can do that. We can make the process easier or harder, but it's going to happen either way. Does that make sense? God's going to transform us into the new creation, the new creature he wants us to be. He sees us as already. But we can make that process really difficult for ourselves, or we can go along with him and cooperate and have a much easier life. <laughs> so. Now, what are they doing? In verse 10 it says, This great multitude is crying out the loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. and They have this symbol of righteousness, the white robes, and they worship and praise God for their salvation. They're praising God for their salvation. So one of the things we're going to do when we get to heaven is to praise God for our salvation. And one of the things that we see here is they recognize that God is the source of their salvation and no one else. So very simple, but very important. Always remember that salvation isn't something we earn. It's something that God gives, and it can only come from God. It's only through Jesus. I've got a quote from David Guzik here. It says, Sometimes believers on earth take their salvation almost for granted. This isn't true of the great multitude in heaven. They're not taking their salvation for granted. And it's my prayer for us and for myself that we would not take our salvation for granted either, but rather be praising God confidently and clearly for all to hear remembering the great cost that Jesus went to to save us from our sins and never ever take it for granted. Now, the victorious great multitude with their palm branches and their white garments are singing this song, praising God for their salvation, and suddenly everybody else joins in. Now, who are the other people at the throne? There's the four living creatures, there's the angels, and there's the 24 elders, which I believe represent the church. And they all join in, in Revelation 7 verse 12, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So, who is this multitude? Where do they come from? Well, it's very clear. Revelation seven thirteen. So this is the second group of people in this chapter who stand. Chapter 6 finished by saying, and who was able to stand? The first group is 144,000 witnesses. The second group here is this multitude of people who stand before the throne in their white garments and they're celebrating the victory with their palm branches. So Revelation 7.13, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where do they come from? So John didn't know. And he didn't even know that he should be asking now, just an application here before we move on regarding evangelism. As an elder, as a mature Christian, we should be able to start the conversation. We should be able to not have to wait for people to talk to us, That we should be going out there and talking to them. We can pray, Lord, use me. Bring someone to me to ask how to be saved. And you could be waiting a long time. But if you actually actually praying, God, help me to ask someone else about how are they saved, then or about salvation, then you'll get some good conversation. So we need to pray for boldness to witness. In verse 14, he, John replies and says, I said to him, Sir, you know. Now John in chapters 4 and 5 recognized the church. He recognized who the elders were. He didn't need to ask who they were. They were the church, you know, a multitude of people from all the nations and tribes and tongues, saved by the blood of the Lamb. But he doesn't know he doesn't recognise this multitude before the throne. And so again, strong evidence that it can't be the church. And then it continues, Revelation seven, fourteen to seventeen. So he said to me, the angel says to John. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. So it's the great tribulation. The definite article there. And washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So, very quickly, these are the ones who come out of the Great Tribulation. This vast multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation are those who are rescued for God's kingdom in the seven-year period of the Great Tribulation. And they had lots and lots of struggles on the earth while they were there. What did it say? They shall neither hunger any more or thirst any more. Their sun shall not strike them nor any heat. Okay? So things were not easy on the earth for the people going through the tribulation. These are martyrs from the great tribulation. So as I said at the start, the presence of so many tribulation saints is a powerful statement of God's grace and mercy. Even in the time of judgment and wrath on the earth, many, many are saved. Also, because the great multitude of these saved people with their palm branches and that, I mentioned right after the 144,000, it's strong evidence that it's the 144,000 who were used by God to reach these people. And it fits with the idea of God using Israel again, his light to the world in that final seven years allocated to Israel. So, It says in verse 14 that they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So no matter what era you're in, what age you're in, we are all saved in the same way as by the blood of the Lamb. Just because you're martyred, that doesn't save you. It's by trusting in God for salvation, trusting that he died on the cross and paid the penalty for your sins. And it's kind of strange. You don't usually think of Washing something in blood makes it white. Usually it stains. (laughs) But we're talking about the cleansing from sin. That the blood of Jesus is the payment for our sin and so our record of sin is washed clean because the payment has been made. Unlike Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Now, the last three verses here describe what this great multitude does and how they are blessed. So the first way they are blessed is they are before the throne of God. So in heaven, the redeemed, and this applies to us too, we will enjoy the immediate presence of God. We can come right into the throne room and be with God. There's no barriers, no waiting lists, no conditions. We just, we're there, okay? The second benefit or the second thing that they're doing is that they are serving him day and night. So in heaven, the redeemed serve God. Now, what we'll be doing is ruling and reigning with him. Heaven will not be a place of boredom. It'll be a place of satisfied work. Okay, God will keep us busy. we we'll rest from our earthly labor but will continue to serve God in a very satisfying and glorious way. It also says that he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. So in heaven God will dwell physically with his people, and this is the ultimate fulfillment of what King David wanted. In Psalm 27 verse 4 it says, One thing I have desired of the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. So that should be our desire as well, is to have that intimate relationship with God. It then says that the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them. So God's shepherding, God's leading, God's guiding, God's nurturing doesn't stop when we die. God's still our shepherd, even as we are in eternity. He's still leading us, he's still guiding us, he's still loving us, he's still nurturing us. He will still provide all our needs and He will be our protector as well. He will keep us from hunger, thirst, and the heat and the sun. It also says that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So in heaven, the redeemed will know no more sorrow or pain. So are you looking forward to no more sorrow and pain? (laughs) I am. The hurt and the struggle of this earthly life are gone. And tears are a thing of the past because God will wipe away every tear. So this is a beautiful picture. Think of a little kid crying and the mum holding the kid and gently wiping away the kid's tears, comforting that child. That's the picture here. God loves us with that kind of nurturing care. But we need to realize that This promise that God will wipe out every tear, will save us from and keep us from things that hurt us, is only for heaven. On this earth, we are promised tribulation. We will have our share of pain and tears to endure, but God gives us strength in our weakness. He gives us comfort in our suffering. So we have a different consolation down here on earth. Something we can't experience up there, but we can experience now. We can experience God's comfort as we go through their suffering. Hope in the midst of pain. So, one day in heaven, but not now, he's going to wipe away our tears. He's going to take away all the things that we suffer from and suffer through. So, hold on, stand firm, for our light afflictions are only for a moment. Don't you like the way Paul says that? Our light afflictions are only for a moment. Hey, I've just been stoned, left for dead. I've been shipwrecked three times. I've been beaten. How many times was he beaten with the rod? The cat and tails It was a huge number of times, you know. And he's been through all this suffering. And he goes, but it's okay. I lied affliction. It's only for a moment. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay, what's heavy affliction then? (laughs) I'm going to finish off with two verses which will help us to get things into perspective. Okay, 2 Corinthians 4:16 to 18. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed day by day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. That's our light affliction. Are only for a moment in the in New King James. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now, Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen, for the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. So, picture yourself in the tribulation going through this terrible persecution with the Antichrist, led and guided by Satan, persecuting saints all over the place and killing them. Just keeping your eyes on heaven and just trusting God that this won't last forever. Okay, they were hungry. They were thirsty. They didn't have a good life. So we have so much to look forward to. Heaven, with our Saviour shepherding us and leading us and comforting us and protecting us and providing for our every need. What more could you want? It's beautiful. So I'm just going to finish with one more section of Scripture. It's Romans eight eight hundred twenty-five. Similar theme. It says. Yet, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. So, Father, help us as we see these 144,000 witnesses who are persecuted but not killed. But then we see the results of their ministry, the, the multitude of people who are victorious over this world. They have the palm branches there celebrating their salvation. And Father, they kept their eyes on you. They survived. They made it. And Lord, that's your promise for us too. These light afflictions are but for a moment. Lord, help us to endure these times by Using these times as a way to draw near and closer to you, whether it be temptation, whether it be persecution, whether it be physical suffering or financial stresses or whatever it might be, broken relationships. Lord, help us to not try and get out of the trial, but rather find you in the trial. So we just pray that you'll just give us this strength or this beautiful application from this chapter today. So I just pray you'll help us to be encouraged and cause us to grow in our faith and trust you more and more and look forward to that day. Hold on to that promise of being with you and being shepherded by you in a way which we can only just dream about now. In Jesus' name, amen.